Good evening, uh, history lovers, and welcome to the latest uh, History Island Head School. Um, this is our fifth, I've lost count actually, it's our fifth or sixth at the Allingham, I think. Anyone know, is it our fifth or sixth? Anyway, you're all very welcome, and um, I'm editor, of course, of History Island, uh, the country's only illustrated history magazine, and I won't labour that point because I, I presume you're all subscribers, or at least regular readers. Now, um, tonight our topic is William Anningham, quote, an Irish poet, but not a national poet, uh, unquote, question mark, and um, unlike Ballyshannon's other uh, famous song, Rory Gallagher, poet William Allingham, born in 1824, spent most of his adult life in his native town before moving to London in 1870. His lyrical and descriptive poetry, uh, while somewhat out of fashion today, well, we'll discuss that later, uh, it was a huge influence on W.B. Yeats and later John Hewitt. Uh, Yeats made his observation shortly before Allingham's death in 1889, but later softened his view. So where does Allingham stand in the pantheon of Irish poets? Was he any good? Okay, I'll discuss that as well. Um, now, to discuss this topic, we have uh, assembled a high-powered panel here. Uh, Annie Begley, who needs no introduction, uh, 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 who's the uh, historian of, of Ballyshannon. Um, Holly Travers is the most important historian from Ballyshannon, yeah, yeah, uh, on, on the national stage. And then we've an actual poet here as well, uh, Maya Cannon. Who's passed uh, through Ballyshannon on many occasions. Right. <laughs> <laughs> now, Anthony, I'm going to start with you. Just who was William Allen? Just give us give us some basic facts, biographical facts of who was he. You know, where oh, lovely. And you're all very welcome to the kindly spot, the friendly town, and that's it. The tourist club. Um, I suppose the Allinghams were here, um, I suppose, from Elizabethan times, um, from the time of the plantation. And um, Ballyshannon was made a corporation, or a, um, and we had Burgesses. We had a, we had um, a corporation, if you like, and one of the one of the, one of those on the corporation in 1613, when the town was established, uh, was a Hugh Allingham. So from that time on, the Allinghams have been been here, and. Um, I, I'm very conscious of the time. I take a hop, skip, and jump now to the Allingham that we're talking about. William, uh, William, um, his his family. There are three strands of it in Ballyshannon. One is the Bacon family, and that's the family to which he belonged. His father was in the bank. His two of his brothers were were managers in the bank. His father was a manager in the bank. And William, for his sins, was in the bank, but didn't particularly want to be in the bank. I say his dad his dad got him a job at it uh, when he was 14 years of age, which was quite young. But that's one of the strands of the, the Allinghams. The other two, one is at Willybrook, and there's a few locals down there. Uh, Willybrook is opposite the Guards Barracks in Valley Shannon, and the Allinghams there had a tannery. They're the same, same family. And the third family was on the Bundoran Road, a little bit further out, a place called Port the Sun. And they were, I suppose, minor, minor landed gentry, and um, some of them fought at the Battle of Waterloo. So therein is the, the, the genesis of them, if you like. But turning to probably to William, um, the thing that is, uh, for a long time we didn't know anything at all about his father, other than that his father was the manager, first manager of the bank, which is the provincial bank, which is the AIB today, and that was back in 1835. But um, we knew nothing about his father. I was always very wondering, where did William pick up this poetry stuff, and where did he get his influences, his literary influences, or whatever you like to call them, and discovered um, that an aunt of William's actually married uh, a Norwegian um, ship owner who was shipping in here from Trondheim, Trondheim uh, in Norway, and uh, Jane, Jane Allingham married 
and went, went to live in Norway. And William's father, as a young man, went out to train uh, with the ship, ship owner there, uh, the shipbuilding business. And whilst he was there, he was keeping a diary, which has turned up. His diary has turned up in Tram Time. Uh, the best find I ever got was on the email about in 2006, when a lady called Eva Hobb uh, in, in Trondheim uh, sent me an email and said, uh, would anybody know anything about Kilbarn Castle, um, about Allinghams and people like that in Ballyshannon, because a lot of their diaries and a lot of their poetry has turned up in the Gunneris Library in, back in Trondheim. So anyway, uh, amongst the stuff that's turned up is a diary written by his father, while he spent two or three years there learning the shipping trade. And in the diary, he's constantly talking about going to plays. He picked up the language very quickly, it seems. Going to plays, reviewing plays, editing plays, and all that kind of stuff. And suddenly you're starting to think, ah, yeah, yeah, his dad has something to do with it. Uh, and then also what has turned up in the Gunnerous Library in Trondheim is loads and loads of poems about places like Catsby, Kilbarn Castle in Ballyshannon, written by a lady called Mary Ann Allingham. And Mary Ann Allingham is, is, an uh, is an aunt of William Allingham, the poet. So if you like, his, his early influences as a child would be from his father. I would have never suspected, as I say, until 2006, that his father, I thought he was just the bank official and, and, and that side of it. Um, so anyway, turning to him, the, the, the dad got married and there were four children in the family. William was the oldest uh, of them, two boys and two girls. And um, William's mother died when he was quite young. In fact, he was only eight or nine uh, when his mum died. His father married a second time and there was a second family of four as well. Um, William uh, went to school uh, just um, round the corner at St Anne's on, on the way up to the graveyard. And um, when his mother died, his father decided to send him off to Calvin to school. So he went there for a year, but he hauled them back. Uh, believe it or not, that was 1843 and the doctors, this will cheer you all up, the doctors had, had suggested that William Senior uh, was in grave danger of dying. That's in 1843. He actually died in 1866. So it was a bit But he, he decided he'd get the sun sorted out. Uh, nepotism was alive and well and living in Ballyshannon, so we got him a job uh, in the bank. And William hated it. Uh, he was in the bank, I suppose, from 1843, right, uh, 1838, right up to 1846. He was eight years in the bank. He was all over the place. He was in Ellisgill and he was in Strabane here in Ballyshannon. And then if you could go into the ba bank in Ballyshannon, you'll see uh, written on the glass, this name, its duration, shall surpass the hand that wrote it on the glass. It's actually, if you go into the AIB, I'm not, I'm not a um, promotion for the bank, but uh, <laughs> if you actually walk into it, you'll see that uh, it's preserved. And William wrote it actually while, whilst the family lived in the bank. So after the bank, I better start wrapping up soon. This is how you do a couple of hundred years of history in, in, in two minutes. After the bank, he, um, his father had an option on the customs. Lovely the way it was. His brother John was to be the one that was to get that, but John wasn't quite old enough or ready enough. So William said, I'll have it. And William went into the customs, and he joined the customs at a very, very, um, I suppose, important time in Irish history, 1846 and he was the principal coast officer, uh, customs officer, out of Donegal Town, stretching from Ballyshannon right through to Killybegs. At the time, I know it will come up later, at the time of the Great Famine mm. uh, and, and how that worked. But um, he, um, again, all this time he was writing, um, other kind of interests that he had, just to put a human perspective on him. Uh, he loved walking, uh, he, loved, he played the fiddle, played the violin rather, and loved swimming, and was very anti-blood sports, 
they were amongst mm. the, the things. He wasn't terribly religious, uh, as we probably discovered as, as the night goes on. Um, he believed in the God all right, but he didn't believe in institutional religion as such, but that, 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 that make him up both later. Yeah. Yeah, well, Andy, they, they say you never let, never let your job interfere with your work, right? Yeah. Uh, so how did, he, how did he become a poet? I mean, he's working on the bank then. Was he, was he doing knickers on the side or what? Like? No, I, I say he became more prolific when he was in the customs because he had a lot of time between um, checking on ships at, at Kitty Bags and Ballyshannon and places like that. He was checking on two kinds of cargo, really, the exports, and he was also ch checking on the emigrants. Um, people who, who were emigrating. But he does see himself in his own diary. He says, I had lots of in-between time whilst I was waiting, you know, was kind of waiting on the next right. ship to, 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 to come along. So, in fact, uh, I'd say he, he became more prolific when, when, when he came to the customs. Now, um, he, he was, as he says himself, terribly isolated out here. There was nobody to, to commune with about, about the, poetic, the, the poetic life. And he started to correspond with people like Lee Hunt, Rossetti, different ones. Uh, in, in, in London and he used to go on his holidays to London all the time and uh, it, it gripped him that and he, he always wanted to go, he always wanted to emigrate so eventually, eventually he did. Well, just, let's, let's move on to the, the poetry because I, mean, I think that uh, Allingham was most famous I think for his poem The Fairies right which was one of his earliest ones Moya. Yeah. Do you want to give us a bit of, I mean, one of the things I want to make sure is we don't forget about the poetry here, right? I, I'm going to read yeah. it, but I'd love to pick up on a couple of the things uh, that uh, Anthony said. It. I'm fascinated about the aunt, because in the diaries, he talks about as a child, his, his mother had died, and he used to go around, or maybe even before his mother, he used to spend <coughs> a lot of time with his, uh, in his grandmother's house, he used to go around to his, his paternal grandmother's house. And he said in the evening, it's a marvellous description of her, she, she, she used to knit and she had a cat that she used to sit on her, called Norway. Yeah. That used to sit on her lap when she was knitting, and another aunt as well, at that best, I think. But his aunt Mary Ann wasn't a knitter at all. She used to read, uh, read them, and she used to read Scott's Waverley novels, mm -hmm. and read them one after the other. And uh, he was a, apparently, he was quite a prodigious reader as a child. He used to pick up the novels sometimes when they were lying around, and he'd read ahead a bit, you know. Yeah. And sometimes when the aunt was re reading out, you know, he'd sort of jump in and try and tell them what what was really going to happen, you know, <laughs> and he'd get thrown out of the room. And uh, the grandmother used to really get in on the act as well, and she'd say, oh, he should have been, when somebody was villainous, oh, he should have been hanged or something, you know. But, but, but interestingly, that's fascinating about the notebooks. Mm -hmm. Remember he says about Aunt Marianne? Aunt Marianne was a poetess and wrote much on local and family subjects, but her simple ambition never even dreamed of actual print, and contented herself with sheets of notepaper and little stitched books neatly written out in something like printing letters and given away to her friends. And he says, I have a ballad, uh, I have in my desk a ballad of hers on my father's approaching wedding. We used to be married to Maggie. But it's fascinating that these, these little books yeah. have turned up. <coughs> they've, they've turned up thanks to a lady called Eva Hobb, who sent, who sent an email yeah. back in 2006 uh, wondering whether anybody out there. Now normally, the, the, the kind of yeah. What about sometimes you reply and sometimes you don't. That was one of the times it was great to reply because it's opened up a whole new vista. Yeah. And there's a lot of other people who started to do research in Trondheim since then. I, I like to think I threw in the ball yeah. and, and moved on somewhere but, else. But it's fascinating at the time, a lady wasn't, didn't, I thought it was wonderful. Yeah, one of her stuff is all never even dreamed of actual print. Yeah, yeah. well, I, I suspect before um, before the decade is out, or, uh, yeah. it probably will That's be in print. Yeah. Yeah. Because the family tradition like that is very powerful thing. I, I will read the fairies, but I have a little anecdote that I'd like to read before. A number of years ago, um, 
Des Kenny of Kenny's Bookshop asked me to come along. He said he, he went along every week to the nursing home in which his mother had, had uh, spent her last years. So he used to, and he was very grateful to for the care, he used to go along and every week he used to read poetry for them for an hour, you know. And he said every, and so he asked me to come along as well. And um, he read a number of poems, a lot of poems you'd have learned in school. And he said every single day, he finished off with the fairies, and they all recited it together. And it's extraordinary, actually. It's quite moving, you know, these elderly people who read it. It's a while since I've read this. <laughs> Up the airy mountain, down the rushy glen, we daren't go a-hunting for fear of little men. We folk, good folk, trooping all together, green jacket, red cap, and white owl's feather. Down along the rocky shore, some make their home. They live on crispy pancakes of yellow tide foam. Some in the reeds of a black mountain lake with frogs for their watchdogs all night awake. High on the hilltop the old king sits. He's now so old and grey he's nigh lost his wits. The bridge of white mist Colum Kill he crosses on his stately journeys from Schlieblee to Rosses are going up with music on the cold starry nights to sup with the queen of the gay northern lights. They stole little Bridget for seven years long. When she came down again, her friends were all gone. They took her lightly back between the night and tomorrow. They thought that she was fast asleep, but she was dead with sorrow. They've kept her ever since deep within the lake on a bed of flag leaves watching till she wake. By the craggy hillside through the mosses bare, they've planted thorn trees for pleasure here and there. Is any man so daring as dig them up in spite, he shall find their sharpest thorns in his bed at night. Up the airy mountain, down the rushy glen, we daren't go a-hunting for fear of little men. We folk, good folk, trooping all together, green jacket, red cap, and white owl's feather. that um, there was a, an old children's rhyme, up the heathery mountain, down the rushy glen, we dare not go hunting for fear of Corner and his men. And Corner was supposed to be a fairy chief, but during Jacobite times, apparently, he preferred to, to Bonnie Prince Charlie. So, funny, he started with that little rhyme, and one day, Killy Beggs, and uh, that, that, that was what written in what 1849, 1850. Yeah. I mean, is there a bit of Allingham? He's a bit like um, Orson Welles, you know. His first movie was his best, you know, and it's all downhill after that. No, no, absolutely no, not. Just, no, but I'm just saying that, that is the, but that is the poem he's most, he's, he's best known for. Yes, yes, but hmm. there, there are other poems which should have a real claim on, on, uh, on our attention. Um, and um, we'll come to Sutherland, I think, later on. Yeah, I, I, maybe, Paulie, I'm, I'm going to go on to you here, because it, it, I, when um, putting this together, like um, I was keen to come up with a title that was suitably you know, provocative to get punters in the door, but not so provocative, provocative that I couldn't get out the door <laughs> after, <laughs> after the, uh, the session. Um, so uh, you, you suggested this, this quote here from, from Yeats, you know, an Irish poet, but not a national poet. And it's sort of like, you know, it's kind of putting the knife into to Allingham in some ways, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so what's what's this? What's he what's he saying here? 
Well, it's a sort of a backhanded compliment. It, it, it comes from 1888, uh, which is towards just before Allingham's death. In 1887, Allingham published a collection of Irish songs and poems, and Yeats wrote a review of it in the Providence Journal, uh, and it's headed, you know, Allingham, poet of Ballyshannon. But the conclusion of it is that Allingham is an Irish poet, but he's not really a national poet. Uh, and Allingham recorded in his diary. This was passed on to him uh, by Catherine Tynan, who was a mutual friend of, of Allingham's and of Yeats, and she was also a friend of Charles Stuart Parnell. But uh, Allingham, when he heard this news, he, he recorded in his diary, uh, non-national, how sad. And uh, he, he was quite in, offended, I think, by, by it, because, and the problem with it is that it has stuck as a view of Allingham, and I think that's unfair. Mm -hmm. uh, what's ignored is that, that, that Yeats changed his mind uh, later on, um, and later, uh, after Allingham's death, he, he said, said much more kindly things about him and about his writing. And he did say that he, d he belonged in the tradition uh, of Davis and Samuel Ferguson. Uh, the thing to remember in relation to Yeats is Yeats is a later generation. Late, Yeats is the nationalist re revival generation. Mm -hmm. and. At the heart of his philosophy and of the philosophy of the Nationalist Revival generation is a view that the function of art and of artists is to, to create a national literature. Uh, so it must be national and nationalist. Mm. Uh, and uh, Yeats's uh, criticism of Allingham, despite the fact that they both came from very similar backgrounds, and despite the fact that Yeats was considerably influenced by Allingham, uh, is that he, he's not political enough. And now, it's, that's fair enough in, in one sense that uh, Allingham comes from uh, a liberal, Ulster liberal Protestant uh, background. Uh, he's certainly not a nationalist. Uh, he's not particularly interested in politics to begin with. Uh, in 1847, uh, in December 1847, he writes to Ralph Waldo Emerson uh, and says that, I'm not interested in politics. I have a sense that they're important, but that's the business of somebody else. Uh, it's it's, it's it, not the business of the Pope. Yeah, but it, it, but the point is that he has eyes in his head, though, right? And he's 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 in the cost, he's uh, operating as a Cosmo official, and this poem, the fairies that that Moy just read out, was written right in the middle of the potato famine. I, I mean, the point is that he obviously Alinkin can write whatever he wants to write about, but it still raised the question. Why is he writing about fairies right when this, this, well, this uh, Holocaust has taken place all around him? Well, well, I think there are two things, and uh, Anthony, I'm sure, is going to have something to say about this, but uh, in relation to folklore, I think I'm a huge interest in folklore and history, uh, in uh, ballads, in popular ba ballads in Ireland and, and in throughout Britain. Uh, so, so he has a strong interest in that, and I mean, that's the proper business of a, of a historian, and it seems to me a bit uh, unfair of Yeats to say that because uh, it, to mm. ignore that aspect of, of Allingham's poetry. But the other thing is that, as you say, in, in the height of the famine, he's writing uh, the poem you just s cited. Uh, in, I was reading in, in one of Anthony's uh, histories a, a reference to Allingham having, vis having visited the workhouse in Ballyshannon yeah. on a number of occasions. The week before he wrote that letter about politics, yeah. he visited the workhouse uh, on the rock, uh, and he talks about listening to a man playing the fiddle, and Tom Reed or yeah. playing the fiddle. Uh, so he was certainly aware of what was going on, but <coughs> it, it certainly it didn't politicise him, at least not yeah. initially. And you, you want to say more about that? Yeah, um, I suppose I'd agree with Parik. Uh, it's unfortunate, uh, it was a year or two before he died, that, mm. that he um, 
uh, said this about uh, Allingham and Allingham died, and I suppose the only words that were in his, uh, on his lips were how sad hmm. right. uh, to be non-national. Two years later, um, Yeats is reviewing some other uh, work of Allingham's, and he says we it's about time we claimed him uh, as our own, hmm. just like we have Davis and Mangan and whatever. And I kind of be saying if I were Allingham, too late, too late. Hmm. The bus is gone. The poor man is dead. Uh, but in returning to the famine thing about it, um, as Porrick says, uh, Allingham, I think they were reserved people. Uh, and I, I'm not, uh, myself, I don't feel that it's the role of the poet. Every poet is to be political. Are we going to put everybody in the straitjacket and if you don't fit the mould, uh, I'm afraid you're not national or you're whatever. That would presuppose that Maya and every poet that there was, I mean, if they're not writing about, or weren't writing about the Northern Troubles, if they weren't writing about whatever, but in defence of him, as, as Boric has said, he did visit the workhouse, and also in defence of him, his family were very, very much involved in, in what we call family relief. Mm -hmm. Charities, uh, socks, uh, raising money for food for people. And I, I don't think they, they, you know, I don't think they, they broadcast it too loud. I, I'll say one other interesting thing too. Um, until I did the history, uh, the recent history of it, the last history was done by his brother, in 1879. Interesting, in 1879, his brother has no mention of the famine. It is, it is, it's, it's, I find it quite extraordinary because, as you say, he had a huge respect for the folk tradition mm. and for, 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 you know, for yeah. ordinary people, uh, for the poor, really. Yeah. And, um, I mean, he wrote extensively on the ballad tradition quite yeah. early on. He wrote a marvellous, uh, marvellous essay on Irish ballad singers. Um, I think it was in the 40s. And it's still, you can get it online. It's actually very, very it, interesting. It was, re, it was republished by the Irish Folk Music Society in the 60s. I think yeah, QG has wrote really, a commentary on really it. Really detailed, so. talking about the fairs in Ballyshan. Mm. And it's an absolute delight if you sort of Google William Allingham ballad singers. And as you say, he visited people in the workhouse. He seems <coughs> to be, from his later work, to be compassionate. But what puzzles me is not so much that he didn't write about mm. it in his poetry, but that it there's no mention in his diaries. He talks, as you say, is this marvellous description yeah. mm -hmm. of being a young customs officer in Donegal Town, and he was saying he was in Dillon's Hotel, and he said he had an office in the front of it, and he had lo cheap lodger, or he had lodgings in the back, and he had a, a room full of books, and he had great time there reading away, and then once in a while somebody came in to get something signed for a bill of lading, and he said, and then occasionally he had to go off and check out on wrecks, mm -hmm. and then he said, he said, the most troublesome but most interesting um, duty he had was inspecting fittings and provisions of emigrant ships. And uh, oh, oh yeah, when he's talking about imports, he mentions bread stuffs, maize, and that's the only hint, you know, of famine oh, when, they, yeah. when they brought in. You know, it, well, at least I, I, I assume that that maybe I'm wrong in that period. But it strikes me as extraordinary that there's so little. Were the middle classes? Were they so well insulated? Well, well there, was a, there was a general election in the middle of the famine uh, where the, when the famine didn't feature at all. You know, so it, it's not it's not just in Ray Allingham. It's, puzzling. Like it's really that, puzzling that he doesn't mention this, or, or were the diaries. I mean, his wife did edit the diaries. Mm, that's the point. Yeah, so that's another point. No, not, to blame, not to blame the wife, because there's another thing. My wife doesn't happen to be here. And in fact, in fairness to his wife, uh, yeah. she was hugely yeah. responsible yeah. for preserving his memory yeah. and for publishing his correspondence. I reckon we wouldn't be here, we really wouldn't be that's here, right. but for Helen Allingham. Yeah. Yes. She made sure, she always felt that that his work was more valid than her own yeah. mm -hmm. and um, after his death uh, and she was the businesswoman as well as being the, yeah. the artist 
poor old William, um, uh, he would have said it himself, he, he didn't know how to make a bob really. And I shouldn't say it because it's in downtown Ballyshannon and I'm talking to my own people, I suppose, and I'm one of them. But his first book of poems in 1850 sold about 50 copies. Hmm. But so. I think just going back to the famine thing, it, 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 it is a feature in the, in the two or three decades after the famine that the famine disappears from uh, a lot of discourse. <laughs> there, but the, the people most affected by it are those who have emigrated. Yeah. So it doesn't, yeah. dis it doesn't uh, disappear in, in, yeah. in England yeah. uh, or in uh, Boston or in yeah. Canada. But there's less talk about it or discourse in the 1860s and the 1870s, which is are the, is the key period for, for Allingham. Seems to me but he, he writes about it, but the puzzling thing is that I mean, his father had emigrant ships. Yeah. Did he still have ships at, at this stage, I wonder? When his, father, I was wondering, when his father entered the bank, did he continue to work? To, to no, no, he would have been allowed to Yeah, so he, yeah, 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 so he yeah. wasn't actually trading. Yeah, so you, no. I think uh, an important thing about Allingham is that you know, when he starts to look outside Ballyshannon, it's not to Dublin he looks, mm -hmm. it's, it's to London, and he becomes mm -hmm. part of the mid-Victorian uh, literary culture. Mm -hmm. And there was an argument that, that had he gone to Dublin, I and mean, he did publish yeah. some poems in Dublin, uh, and he did initially correspond with William Carton, and they fell out. Uh, but he would have been mixing with Mangan and Davis and mm -hmm. uh, Carton and so on, and there, there would have been a slightly different milieu, whereas yeah. the, the, the cosmopolitan centre he looks to is London. Yeah. Uh, and I think that does have a major impact oh, on him. There's a strange kind of a dichotomy there, because, you know, I mean, he, he's kind of hankering after bright lights of London on one hand, yeah. but his material is very local what well, he has about he has that wonderful poem let me sing of what i know yeah. and isn't that true of all artists that that you know the advice you're given is work with what you know start with what you know mm. and that he certainly took that advice and he has a that wonderful poem about uh, it's it's worth i think quoting people would know it but it's it's let me sing of what i know a wild west coast a little town where little folk go up and down tides flow and winds blow <laughs> night and tempest and the sea Human will and human fate, what is little, what is great, howsoever the answer be, let me sing of what I know. And what I know is Ballyshannon and the yeah. culture uh, of, of, of the area. The, but that raises the, the, the question, which um, has been raised a couple of times, is, is being local necessarily being, uh, not yeah. being national or anti-national? Is being, is is being parochial? Uh, Frank Harvey raised that question about Allingham's work. Said, yeah. Just because you're parochial or interested in your local town or your local, does that mean you're 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 anti-national or that you're not you're, you're not relevant to the larger stage? I think actually, Kavanagh. I mean, Kavanagh's a marvelous. Yes, epic. Yes. Well, no, he's a marvelous essay on the parochial and the provincial. And he but said he said you know uh, the provincial. Uh, you know, he said he said there's nothing. He said actually, he says it's an absolute strength to be parochial because you absolutely believe in what's around you. You believe in the text yes. about your right. To be provincial, he said, is a thing to be avoided yes. because you're always you're, you're pining for Moscow. You're assuming it's all happening over there, and Allingham was both. Yes. And I mean, he he did you know he, it was quite extraordinary how he integrated himself in one way to the the English literary scene. He knew all the great minds. Of the well, he was a little bit of a groupie now. He did he did, he did like to you know if, yeah. he, if there was somebody he was interested in, he he, he wrote to them and he, he pursued them. He was, but he and and the, you said that. Uh, I mean, he was very much taken with Carlyle, who was yes. allegedly very grumpy. Mm, yes, and yes. Uh, I think so. But who was it said of Carlyle? You probably know that God was very kind that made Carlyle and his wife marry each other. They made two people miserable. <laughs> 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 but anyway, Allingham was very taken 
about by them and seemed to follow him around. Yeah. And somebody said that he was going to be a, he was going to be a, he told Saint Carlyle, to Carlyle, oh, Allingham's going to be your Boswell, you know. Yeah. But I, Carlyle tried to persuade Allingham to write a history of Ireland, mm. and, and uh, Allingham was very interested uh, yeah. in the history of Ireland. In fact. You talked about giving a short history there in a, in a couple of sentences, but in, in that Lawrence Bloomfield in Ireland poem, there's a short history of Ireland presented by yeah. it's right from the earliest time down to the yeah. 19th century, yeah. which is quite a remarkable condensed history of Ireland by, 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 by Allingham. Yeah, he had a great feeling for it because uh, anybody can look at it, you probably can Google it, there's a Ballyshannon Almanac of 1862, and he wrote a history uh, of the um, He'd have the O'Clearies and the Four Masters and all the rest of it. And he has a very, very good grasp and, and it's quite balanced. I mean, uh, I think he was balanced in everything that he does. And I think he didn't have the funding to, to, to do this famous history uh, uh, of, of, of Ireland that he wanted to do. He, he couldn't get that. He, he did, as we probably hear, he did get a pension of a hundred um, pounds at one stage from Gladstone because of Lawrence Bloomfield and that. But um, he needed more to, 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 to devote all his time. So a lot of his life was spent the bank, the customs, and then scraping a living on, until he met Helen, I suppose, in 1874. Mm -hmm. And she put the show on the road, to be honest with yeah. you. Uh, she's a mighty woman. Just before we move on, I, I just forgot to, to let people know the start the format of this. Uh, don't don't relax too much, like this is this is a school. You know, you're supposed to do a bit of work here. <laughs> <laughs> and ask questions or disagree with the panel here. So just uh, gather your thoughts there at any stage. If you want to ask a question, just put your hand up and I'll I'll I'll, I'll uh, pitch it uh, at the panel. Now, Lawrence Bloomfield. This comes up. This has come up in our correspondence before this, um, which is obviously a, a very important uh, poem. Um, Maya, you might re re do read a bit of it in a minute, but maybe, uh, um, Parik, if you could just give us the background to this, explain what, what is this poem, what's it about, what's the subject matter? It's a, it's a hybrid novel in verse, published initially in 12 chapters in Fraser's Magazine, 1862, 1863, and then published as a whole in 1864. But it is important to remember that it, it was published in episodes, so it's a bit like a soap opera, uh, and it's, it, it's yeah. So it, 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 each chapter is a set, a set-contained uh, chapter, uh, which presents a vignette on some aspect of rural Irish life. Lawrence Bloomfield is is Irish bred, or Irish born but English bred. Uh, a landlord who inherits an estate comes back to Ireland. He's in his youth, uh, uh, a patriot, wants Irish independence uh, or self-government, but then. Uh, through his education in England, he, he takes a slightly different view. He comes back to Ireland uh, and looks at rural Irish life and the kinds of tensions that are, that are there. So it's a remarkable novel about the land question, about uh, rural cr crime. It's got uh, vignettes on the, the local fair, on an eviction, uh, on an assassination uh, of, of a land uh, agent, uh, of the ribbon men and the secret societies. Uh, and Bloomfield is, is confronted by this question of, well, what's the best policy to pursue? How do you get sort of social peace in Ireland? How, how do you get progress? And ultimately, his conclusion is you get progress by having collaboration between tenant and landlord, uh, having an improving landlord uh, who invests in his uh, states, that recognises tenant right, uh, that rec recognises uh, fair rents, fixity of tenure, the sorts of issues 
that become prominent in the land war in the 1870s and the 1880s. Well, when, when was Bloom Treaty written? In 1862, 63. So prefigures the land wars. Now, it's been criticised for being uh, a bit condescending, a bit imperialistic. It's sort of this outsider coming in and look, look, looking at the peasants. And it talks about, there are some condescending references to the, the, the Celtic peasants being like children. And if you just show them leadership, uh, they'll follow you. But he says very harsh things about landlords and he says very hard things about land agents. Um, and what's interesting is you get a lot of quotations from uh, Lawrence Bloomfield, but you have to say, well, who, who is speaking? And in each episode, he has a different perspective. He looks at different per points of view. Lawrence Bloomfield may be speaking, but it may be the local clergyman or the local doctor or it may be the, the, the local ribbon man. Uh, so you, you have to ask the question, whose words are these and uh, which, which does uh, Allingham identify with? I think it's quite a remarkable piece. It's, it's um, 5,000 5, lines long, uh, 12 mm. chapters, almost 50,000 words, but it really deserves to be better known than it is. Can I say just an aside on it? Um, four miles from here, um, some of you will know, uh, in Belique, um, where the Bloomfield family, the people that were behind the pottery, That's right. it, it's very coincidental yeah. uh, that there was a landlord family around here. The other thing is, I think it's very much, is tenant right. He reckons if they get tenant right, this is the, the, mm. the hinge that the Lawrence Bloomfield is. It's a bit like the home, uh, killing home rule with kind. That's right. That's yeah. really what yeah. it is. Yeah. If, if, you, if you look after the land, they'll not be bothered too much about um, who's controlling them. And I think that's the non-national bit that comes in there a, a little bit, that Allingham would be not that in favour of, of, of home rule. Um, he would be in favour of tenant right. And there was a kind of, um, and they all live, there's a slight feeling of that they may all live happily ever after if they get, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. you know. Yeah, but he, he, do, he does say they'll all live happily ever after, or if you don't do something about it, what you're going to get is emigration. Yeah. What you're going to get is a continuation of, of social, social conflict. Yeah. And, I disagree with you slightly in relation to, I mean, as you, I don't think he, he supported home rule. He certainly, it, his, Lawrence Bloomfield foreshadows constructive unionism. That's the kind of constructive policy he was arguing for. But he does concede that there is a case for giving ownership of land to, to tenants because he su suggests that the way, that if you give people ownership in some property, they become more conservative. And that's essentially the social philosophy that Charles Stuart Parnell advocated in the mm -hmm. 1870s and 1880s. Well, well, you better, better, better read a bit yeah. of it. Uh, let, yeah. let the audience judge for themselves. <laughs> I thought very, somebody described him as, well, I thought it very interesting that he was that impossible to sing an Irish liberal. <laughs> and also there's that quotation you come across again and again. He says, I would give the wastelands of Ireland into toilful Irish hands. It's the wasteland, the marginal lands that were claimed by people, you know, with such pressure on land uh, before the famine that uh, sort of really mountainy land was being reclaimed. And uh, I think it might be this land he was, he was reclaiming, but I agree with you. I think it's a marvellous, marvellous poem. And also, it, what, what really I find most interesting is that it gives, um, it shows us the immense variety within the unionist, uh, within the unionist party. You know, because we tend to, having seen things through nationalist eyes, to think of unionism almost as a, 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 a sort of a unified movement. And he shows marvelous, um, marvelous variety. I'm just going to read. He, it starts. The, he, the young young Lawrence Bloomfield arrives home, and he's going to uh, he goes to dinner at his uncle's. 
And uh, these are just a few of the characters. I'm just going to read a tiny bit of these marvellous portraits he gives of uh, um, a few of the characters. And then I'm going to read a tiny bit from the eviction scene. So first of all, he's describing an absentee landlord called Lord Crashton. Joining Sir Ulix at the river's bend, Lord Crashton's acres east and west extend. Great owner here in England, greater still. As poor folks say, the world's divided ill. On every pleasure men can buy with gold, he's surfeited, and now, diseased and old, he lives abroad. A firm in Molesworth Street, doing what their attorneyship thinks meet, the rule of 70 properties have they, wide waves the meadow on a summer day. You know, skip on. Twice only in the memory of mankind, Lord Crashton's proud and noble self appeared, up river last time in his yacht he steered, with Maltese Valley and Parisian cook, and one on whom askance the gentry look, although a pretty well-dressed demoiselle, not Lady Crashton, who, as gossips tell, goes her own wicked way. They stopped a week, then with gay ribbons fluttering from the peak and snowy skirts spread wide on either hand, the Aphrodite courtesied to the land and glided off. My lord with gouty legs drinks baden baden water and likes dregs, with cynic jest inlays his black despair and curses all things from his easy chair. And I'll read a couple of shorter ones. There's a guy, there's a, the next landlord is Finlay and uh, He's basically, he's, he's thrifty, but it's tight as tuppence. And then there's Isaac Brown. Pass on to Isaac Brown, a man elect, Wesleyan stout, our wealthiest of his sect, who bought and still buys land. None quite sees how, whilst all his shrewdness and success allow. On Crashton's mortgage, he has money lent. He takes a quiet bill at 10%. So Crashton's actually in debt, and uh, uh, Isaac Brown has the mortgage. <coughs> All preachers love him, he can best afford the unctuous converse, converse and the unctuous board. For though at poor house board was never known a flint here guardian angel than good brown, as each old hag and shivering child can tell, go down with Isaac and he feeds you well. And uh, then there's a guy called Dr. Larimer. Dr. Larimer, an Ulster Presbyterian, Ireland forsooth a nation once again. If Ireland was a nation, tell me when. For since the civil modern world began, what's Irish history? Walks the child a man? I know not. Far too briefly Cromwell ruled. We see the melting of a barbarous race. Sad sight I grant, sir, from their ancient place. But always, everywhere it has been so. Red Indians, Bushmen, Irish, they must go. <laughs> <laughs> and a tiny bit on the eviction. Oh, I think I'm missing a page here. Oh, dear, dear. I think we've got a good flavour there anyway. Yeah. Um, what, so, Polly, what was he trying to do with this this, this poem? Was this giving good <coughs> advice to the government? Or? I, I, I think he was going, trying to explain, Turgenev uh, said that he didn't understand Ireland until he read that poem. Uh, it, it was hugely well received by people like John Stuart Mill, Charles Dickens, um, Leckie, uh, Crude, the historians all commented favorably on it. It was very well reviewed, very well reviewed uh, by the Dublin Review, which was a Catholic uh, journal. Uh, it was very critically reviewed by the Church of England Gazette, who said it was vulgar and, and inappropriate and, and, and condemned it. I think he was trying to explain 
the Irish question, the, the, the Irish land question, uh, particularly to an English audience. Uh, and he was presenting different perspectives and a way forward. In a way, it's a, what's to be done in Ireland, in other words. That mm-hmm. it, it, it is, if you like, the closest he comes to a, a, a social or a political mani- manifesto, that if you want progress, mm. uh, you, you really have to address that issue. And it, he's putting it up to his own class and, and to the ruling class in England to do something. And that's the 1860s. Nothing happens. So the next time you have major uh, crop failure in Ireland in the late 1870s, you have a land war. And that leads ultimately to the end of land rightism, uh, which, you know, over, over the next 20, 20 years, the campaign for the, the transfer of ownership. Uh, what Allingham was offering, in fairness, what, what was something much short of that. It was tenant right. It was recognizing the, the right. There's an interesting bit in it where he, talk, he talk, talks about the ownership of property. And he says, well, where do we get ownership? Do we have a right to own things? Uh, and he, he, he doesn't answer that decisively. Uh, but he, he's raising the question that maybe there are limits to personal property. Mm-hmm. Uh, and later in his, his life, it's interesting that he, he corresponds and, and reads quite a bit with uh, Henry George. Henry George was the American social radical <coughs> influence, Michael Davitt, who, who argued a case for land nationalization, that, that land was too important for, to be held by individuals and passed on from father to son or from, from, uh, from one generation to the next, that it, the, the community had a, had a sense of interest in, in, in land. So it, it's interesting that later in his life, Anningham was reading people like, now this is long after uh, Lawrence Bloomfield, but he, he's reading that kind of very socially radical material about land and land ownership and land reform. And you see, we've, Just, come, we've come a fair bit um, from, uh, as Boy was saying originally about the fairies when you were suggesting that, uh, was that the limit of, uh, of what he'd written? We've come a long way from it now. We're discussing tenant right, we're discussing mm. all that. Mm. And he did, it was acknowledged by Gladstone, he did yep. get his pension of £100, pound, uh, based uh, primarily on, on the work that he had done uh, in Lawrence Bloomfield. But a lot of his work, a lot of his prose writing too in Fraser's magazine and different was about Ireland, mm-hmm. was about the issues. A lot of his writings that he, Patricius Walker, where, where, he, where he did his travels, he travelled around um, France, Germany, Ireland and wherever else. So there's a whole other string to his bow, uh, which probably hasn't. I, I, I kind of nearly blame the school ontologies. I remember looking at the old ontologies that you would look at. Uh, and you'd look, um, you'd all these short stories and all these poems, and you could nearly bet your bottom dollar four ducks in a pound that will be there. <laughs> maybe, maybe Acero will be there. Maybe a huge valley shanty, which also trades as, as um, God knows, the winding banks of Erin and, uh, and whatnot. Um, you, you, you got those, and, and that's all you got. So uh, mm. the other was lost. I suppose the other thing is, it, it was, I mean, Park has, has described it eloquently enough. It was a very challenging piece of work to have done, and there weren't too many in this pantheon of great Irish poets that you're talking about who were taking on a task of 5,000 words in that kind of verse and the rest of it. And it was read in the House of Commons. You're saying, who's it for? It was read in the House of Commons, you know, by mm-hmm. Gladstone. Very just significant. Just, Maya, something you mentioned there, I just want to pitch at, at um, Porrick, is this, you, you mentioned the, the the lack of you know, cohesion, the, the, what would be described as the unionist camp. You know, in other words, this was a it was a very mixed bag. Park. I mean, this this going back to this. This is in defence of Allingham in a sense. 
that we run the risk of imposing kind of identity, today's identity politics backwards into history. When in fact, like the, the, the whole situation was, was in a much greater sense of flux in terms of... That, 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 that's absolutely correct. All history is read backwards, whether we like it or not, we read it backwards. We know what happened afterwards and we tend to read back from that. But uh, we assume what happens in the late 19th, early 20th century is you have an increasing uh, consolidation in the nationalist movement and in the unionist movement. Whereas before the 1870s, 1880s, there was a very strong Ulster liberal movement. Um, not liberal unionist, just a lib Ulster liberal uh, movement. But the, the Ulster liberals get driven out of politics with the rise of a more hardline unionism and a more hardline nationalism in the late 19th century. So at, at uh, Allingham's time, there, there was a very strong liberal, Ulster liberal tradition, which goes back to the 18th century. I, in, in a sense, I, I, I think I said to you that Allingham was a bit unlucky. He was born a bit late or a bit early. Uh, you know, he might have taken a rather different position if he was born when he uh, was, was, was born, or if he was born in the late 18th century, I don't have any doubt he would have been part of the, the Protestant patriot tradition, because that's the tradition that his family fit into. <coughs> Just people like, people yeah. like McNeese's father, I suppose. Get, get in quick before the panel takes over. Uh, back yes, there. Yeah. small question. That very, Gloria, that very first poem you read about from the da sort of Danby um, Lord, he says he goes abroad. That very first one you read from? Oh, yes, yeah, this is the first, the first excerpt from England is actually abroad. Is that the abroad he's going to? Oh, no, I think on the continent. He's drinking bath and bath and water. No, I, I don't know. Oh, yes, yeah, so that I, would I be the continent yeah, abroad. I expect he's had some, no, some, some stall. He there. speaks of England as being abroad, because that would be nationalist, Ireland, England. I, I, I yeah. say abroad, abroad just mean going about the place yeah. I mean, as well. Yeah. I mean, yeah. 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 Just to, can I just move on to um, Allingham, Allingham's move uh, to London, right? Um, how did that work out, uh, Anthony? I mean, what, how did he get on there when he gets to London? Uh, I suppose he struggled. He struggled initially, and um, uh, um, he eventually got into Fraser's magazine um, in the 1870s. And um, two, two great events happened in 1874. He married Helen. Uh, he made what was called the late Victorian marriage. Um, he was 50 and Helen was 25. Oh, wow. Nice of you. And, and, you from what you're saying, she <laughs> won't well. uh, No, she didn't have money, but, but she had the capacity. She, she had the capacity and the industry to make money. And also, see, what okay, is, okay. Well, what happened? Helen was a very talented. Yeah, she was extremely yeah, talented, yeah. extremely talented. And in 1874, also, he became editor of Fraser's magazine. And I suppose that that, that upped things uh, a, a little bit. But he was never that happy. Um, he was, what would you call, he, he was an independent spirit, if you like, um, who, who didn't like to be working to timelines and didn't like to work to pressure. In fact, he, he spent a lot of his time fiddling with his poems and change, fiddling stories. That's, that's probably not a very intellectual word, you know what I mean? <laughs> he, 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 he dabbled a lot and he was never very happy with it. So you can imagine what it was like to do that deadlines for, for, for Fraser's magazine and that. But they written there's a lot of Irish stuff now. I, I have not read Fraser's magazine. A lot of Irish stuff in, um, contained in it. And I think what Porrick was saying earlier, he was trying to explain uh, a view of Ireland um, to an English audience, which, which, which I think he deserves credit for too. Well, one, one thing worth mentioning that he did publish in Fraser's magazine, which I think is quite remarkable, it's uh, an Irish, a translation of a Ar middle Irish manuscript called Ashling McCundlina, which is was, was never published before. It, it, the, the manuscript dates back to the 14th century. It's based on a, 
uh, a story that goes back to the 9th or 10th century. Uh, and he corresponded with some of the leading Celtic scholars in, in, in Dublin. Uh, he agreed to publish a translation in, in Fraser's magazine, which is quite remarkable, uh, because I can imagine it, you know, it's not an obvious thing to be publishing in the kind of magazine Fraser's magazine was. Uh, but that's one of the most important uh, Celtic, Irish, uh, Middle Irish manuscripts, uh, which saw the light of day only because of uh, William Allingham. <coughs> and that's why it sticks a little bit in the throat to listen to uh, Yeats's comment about non-national. Yeah. Uh, because he had a deep and abiding uh, interest in Irish culture, in Irish history. He was very uh, a strong antiquarian tradition, like Samuel Ferguson. No, I'm going to ask that, I mean, should, we, should we see Allingham not just support, but as a, as, a, as a major folklore collector? I mean, how serious was he as, well, I, I, how well attuned was Zier to, 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 you know, folk culture? It was hugely, I mean, if, if you read Lawrence Bloomfield, there's huge amounts of Irish phrases go through, run, run mm. through it. Mm. He has descriptions even of, uh, football match, of a hurling match, he, he uh, quite, we were discussing this er earlier, he referred to a hurling, hurling being played, uh, and they were using a nag, now, I don't know if you're familiar with a nag, uh, a nag is a wooden ball, or what we call a, a slither in, in, in Donegal, you, you'd refer to it as a, as a nag, in, in Munster or in, in Leinster people would call it a slither, whereas um, um, Allingham refers to it as a nag in, 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 in Lawrence Bloomfield. Uh, Moy has already said he, he, he published uh, a very important article on, on Irish folk, on oh, Irish ballads. Um, some of the only descriptions of ballad singers that we have from the 19th century are from, from Allingham. He published a book, uh, a collection of English ballads, uh, which is interesting to look back on because it's got a lot of, a lot of the Christie Moore, you know, the Little Musgrave and songs like that. Yeah. Uh, are all contained in this collection published by Allingham with an annotation and with commentary as to where they come from and that kind of thing. So he, he has a genuine feel for history, for anthropology, for uh, talks a lot about round towers and ruins and even, even in, in Abbey, uh, the, 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 his description of Abbey Asaro, he spent a lot of time getting the details, some of the historic details in that and he, co he corresponded with uh, uh, Different experts in in in, in, the, in that area to make sure the, the actual historical details ring true rather than, than yeah. don't. And another side to it, um, I, I suppose we better not run down our own. Uh, Charles Dickens employed him quite a bit in household yeah. words, uh, writing articles, and was very 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 um, taken with him. <coughs> Helen, um, uh, I like this line because I've used it before. Helen. Um, Helen actually um, did the, the original sketch drawings and that for Far From the Madding Crowd for Thomas Hardy. And prior to, to um, Marion William, um, Thomas Hardy was showing his affections towards Helen. But I always say she chose the boy from Billy Shannon. <laughs> <laughs> now, guys, I'm just keeping an eye on the time here. So if anyone else wants to come into the audience, uh, you, you need to get your speak in quick here. Yeah, um, it's like a sing song. Everybody wants to get in at the end, you know. Um, just so, um, just to go, go back to you, Anthony. Then, just to, uh, moving on a little bit from Allingham himself, what, what happened to the Allinghams in, in the town here? Um, what name here of today? Yeah, yeah. The, can I answer it in two parts? Because it, I, I think there's there's one part. What happened to his children? They had a family of three children, two boys, 
uh, um, by the way, my notes are very extensive. Uh, <laughs> but the odd time, just a name. A name it's all up here. I see yeah. a, name, a name goes by me. Gerard, Eva and Henry were the three Allingham children. I think, I think it's worth remembering them because you wonder, there is no, there's none of them, of their descendants alive today. Gerard and Henry were both um, engineers, believe it or not. Gerard is a very topical at the moment, um, fought in the First World War. He was a lieutenant in the Navy and got an MBE. Poor old Eva, um, it's not so much that she's written out of it, she was very, very unwell as a child and spent all her time at home. And if you ever see Helen Allingham's paintings, she, 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 she has her children in them. Um, of the three of them, uh, Henry was um, the only one. He, Henry had three children, and he went to live with Helen but after William's death. Two of her children died tragically. One, one had leukaemia, and the other was a nurse, and she died in 1942 in Indonesia. Uh, the third guy was Patrick, and he didn't marry. Patrick Allingham died in 1989, and Patrick was the last of that particular line and Patrick left all his mother's bits and bobs and memorabilia to a place called Burg House uh, Museum it's in London it's in Hampstead and um, just on the side uh, a guy from here went over um, I, I better God rest the poor man he died since he's dead, dead a good while Walter Brady was his name he's from Enniskillen but he went tracking the Allinghams and he went to Hampstead to the house where the Allinghams lived and he knocked on the door and he said he was there to hear about a poet called William Allingham who used to live in this house. And the guy had, you'll appreciate this, but the guy had quite longish hair. And he said, no, 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 we don't know anything about a William Allingham here. Uh, and Walter Brady said, man, who are you? Uh, we're, we're members of a pop group called the Bee Gees. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, <laughs> if, 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 if you leave with nothing else, you'll remember that the, the, the house that William Allingham lived in, the Bee Gees lived in. I just, just to wrap up, um, I just wanted to wrap up on, on, on you know, where where is Allingham today? Because he seems to me that it seems to me that he's he's kind of out of fashion, you know. I mean, his legacy is huge, though. Yeah, well, it really is, is enormous. And is, is he out of fashion? And if so, why? Well, I mean, he's part of a tradition, you know. And I think I think we really, we, you know, to get back to Yeats, it's almost impossible to underestimate his importance in Yeats' life. Yeats himself later, when he was writing to, um, to to Helen Patterson, to to to, to or Helen Allingham. Um, he said, I, this, now this is uh, in 1902, and uh, Dunemer Press, or Dunemer Industries sort of been set up, and um, Yeats is, you know, having these beautiful books printed for him, you know, of his own work, but also of his friends, Lionel Johnson and William Allingham, they're top of the list, and he's writing for permission to Allingham's widow, and he said, I have the greatest possible admiration for Mr. Allingham's poetry. I'm sometimes inclined to believe he was my own master in Irish verse, Starting me in a way I have since written for good and evil. I mean, if you think of the similarities as very similar backgrounds, you know, Protestant, young Protestant gentlemen in Western towns, uh, or at least part of Yeats is like that, um, the fact that uh, the, the whole um, mythological thing, we take it for granted now that Yeats wrote about mythology, it was an extraordinary decision to, 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 to write about mythology. His first collection, you know, full of fairies, you know, that that was, um, I said, it has to be, even the lines, you know, years ago and years ago when the told reed sighs as the wind does blow. You know, what's his, one of his collections, The Wind Amongst the Reeds, 
the stolen child. Mm -hmm. Did that come from little Bridget? Even, you know, the, the um, in Farewell to Every White Cascade, you know, where there's, the, there's a, this tree, one split yew tree, and then uh, Yeats says this, the old brown thorn trees break in two. You choose Yeats a plagiarism here. I think the, the, the influence is huge. The other poet who we influenced in our state, of course, is Frank Harvey, whose yes. daughters are here, and uh, who wrote um, uh, um, a radio play called Every White Cascade, mm -hmm. and who dedicated a poem to him. And he says, The right word at the right time, it turned out, as seed he, he never seen, although he's, he's never seen, although he's sown or had it in him to sow, took root and grew when he was long gone. I'm still taking crap from the field. So the, just the, the power of the tradition, I think, can't be underestimated, really, and that contribution. Yeah, I agree with that. On, on Yeats, Yeats wrote, well, one published novel called John Sherman, which was published in 1890, 1891. And if you read it, uh, it's hugely... Uh, Similar to the sorts of themes that you find in in, in Allingham. he talks a lot about the you know the west of Ireland town on the you know the yeah. west coast, and then of course Yeats in his poetry builds up this myth of the west and the fishermen and so on, yeah. and and you it, the, the, there is a close similarity with the sort of idea that's developed by Yeats yeah. with uh, what what Allingham had been been presented, yeah. and finally on the, the you made a mention of Cavanagh, um, and. Kavanagh, that poem that Kavanagh has, uh, epic, where he's talking about a land dispute in Monaghan uh, in, 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 in the year of the, of the Munich bother. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And he, you know, he's, he, he's losing, he, he, he's not sure what's more important, what's happening internationally or nationally, or what's happening in this local dispute over who, who owns that half root of rock. And he says he was inclined, Kavanagh says he's inclined to, to, to lose faith in Ballyrush and Garchin, the Homer's ghost came whispering, saying, uh, I made the Iliad of such a local row. Uh, Port of Ballyshannon is the same thing. Uh, what what Allingham does is he takes the local and turns it into something universal. Uh, and I think that's what yeah. that, that's what the argument is. And Kevin reminds me of a wonderful thing that Shemus Heaney said, and I was thinking of yeah. it in relation to the relationship between Yeats and Allingham. He was talking about Kavanagh, and he said, he said, Kavanagh allows us to dwell without cultural anxiety among the, our, the, familiar land, the familiar landmarks of our life. And I think that possibly Allingham did that for Yeats. He said, it's okay to write about the West of Ireland. It's okay to write about fairies, you know? And uh, because, I mean, he was a role model. This was a guy from the West of Ireland who became editor of one of the most prestigious um, literary and historical journals of the time. So he must have been a, a, a role model for the young Yeats. Because mm. we, we forget that Ireland was not regarded as a literary centre at all. When Yeats was setting up the Abbey Theatre, George Moore, uh, who was a well-known novelist, but he's an Irish novelist in England, <coughs> his life in London and Paris, said, oh, uh, Yeats wants to establish a literary theatre in Dublin. He said, Dublin is as much in need of a literary theatre as a mule is in need of a holiday. <laughs> <laughs> but there wasn't a sense of our literary nation, you know. And, and I, I suspect that, uh, that possibly Allingham was a very important uh, presence to live. Just something that, that Andy mentioned there, uh, Park, is that the, 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 um, Allingham, in, 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 I think it, if I heard it right, in his uh, 
working for Fraser's magazine, he was writing about things like round towers and the iconography of, mm. of Irish nationalism. And of course, these are things we, we regard as kind of cliches today, right? But the point is, the cliches were actually invented. They, they were they were they were produced and they were promoted. They weren't cliches then. This was new stuff then. Mm. Yeah, this is cutting edge then, wasn't it? The, the promotion of that type of iconography. Yeah, but, but in, in, in fairness to Allingham, and, and he says this about Lawrence Bloomfield in Ireland, that, that, that in writing it, he, he tried to avoid cliché and he, he, he tried to avoid what he called paddyism. That's the kind of stock Irish, mm. stage Irish kind of character. Uh, that he wanted to present the peasantry uh, as he knew the peasantry, which he did know from you know going to fairs and collecting music and so on and so forth. And Yeats also admitted in relation, he was, he was comparing uh, Thomas Davis and Allingham and said, well, Thomas Davis had an intellectual view about the Irish and about Ireland, whereas Allingham had a real practical view because uh, you know he had, he, he had a more grounded view in relation to the countryside and the people who lived there and the sorts of issues that were there. Uh, so that, as I say, later Yeats did recant somewhat on his earlier criticism. I was going to see anyone in the audience want to come in there. Yes, get in quick, because we're nearly out of time here. So, do you want to come in there? Do you want to ask a question? No. no. You're okay. Uh, sorry, uh, you asked me a question earlier. It's just for the audience, it's information. You asked me um, who were the last of the Allinghams. The last of the Allinghams that lived in this town were two sisters, uh, Maud and Catherine, and they would have both worked in Belief Pottery in their younger days. They were artists. They were daughters of Hugh Allingham, um, William's brother, and they actually um, they lived at the top of the main street. Um, it, it's a house owned by the Darien family now, about three doors up from the entrance to St. Anne's Church, travelling up the hill. And the, the sad part of it, the end of the Allingham was, uh, Catherine died, and they were waiting for her sister to come from England. And while they were waiting, Maud, Maud is the one that um, um, I never get an opportunity to mention my books. The two books, the two books I've done in Ballyshannon. If you look at the cover of them, if you never buy them, uh, they're both paintings by by Maud Allingham. But uh, the two, uh, the last two Allinghams to live in Ballyshannon and uh, died within a matter of a few days of each other, and they were both buried together. And we're talking about um, this time of year, November uh, 1948, and they're both buried up at St Anne's, and that was the last of the Allinghams in Ballyshannon. Now I'm going to finish up, and I, I think it's only appropriate to finish up with, with, with a poet from Moya. You want to give us a, a few more? I want to give three. The Four Ducks in a Pond. <laughs> but also another little one which I just came across myself when I was doing a bit of reading there last week. His last poem, which I think is a very, very fine poem. It's very short, so I'm going to read Four Ducks in a Pond and then the other one. Four Ducks in a Pond, a grass bank beyond, a blue sky of spring, white clouds in the wind. What a little thing to remember for years, to remember... Can I ask a question there? Was was Allingham going on minimalist in his old age? You know, because he's written these, these these you know ten verse things and you know and then that is so beautifully concise like a yeah. Japanese haiku or whatever. I wish he'd gone minimalist a lot earlier. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's really good when uh, when uh, he needed a good editor. That's the thing. Yeah, <laughs> he's, he's terribly when he's when he's and he can be dreadfully long-winded. But he can be really, really succinct, and uh, you know, these great lines like describing the sea at Eastburn: two shrimpers, blackened with the radiancy, pushing their nets along the ripples verge, and the stuffy nose. But I want to finish off with this little poem, which I just discovered recently. I think it's wonderful. 
he, he, he spent his last, uh, uh, not very long time, in Hampstead, um, very near Keats's house in Hampstead, and he wrote this poet and bird, who's just reflect, really, um, this was written, I think, a few months before he died, um, about Keats. And he said, A nightingale upon a time here tried his tone. Here, too, a poet made a rhyme. Bird, poet, gone. Trivial at best, the bird's gay song, a shape's trill. The poet's rhyme will last as long as Hampstead Hill. <laughs> thank you very much, Maya. Um, I think I'll, we'll wrap up there. Um, I'd just like to thank our, our panel here, um, um, Andy Begley, uh, Barry Travers, and Maya Khan. Figure Maya for, for your recitations. And I'd like to you, you thank you, the audience, for your attention. And I hope to see you back here next year at next year's History and Hedge School at the Annie Festival. Thank you very much. Thank you.